0: Hello and welcome to Think Fit, Be Fit Podcast Network. My name is Jennifer Schwartz. I'm the hostess and creator of this podcast network. Today, you are listening to our new show, Fitness for Consumption. This is part one of a two-part series about the F word, and that means function. This show is hosted by Gregory Gordon and Paul Juris. They share more than 50 years of collective knowledge and experience offering a human movement point of view on all things fitness. So just think of this as science, human movement science at the PhD level applied to the everyday in and out of your fitness. In each episode, they'll bring their own unique perspective on wellness and performance and empower you to ask better questions, think more critically, and take better control of your own personal health and wellness. For me, it's a mental supercharge to add to my fitness approach, and I know it will be helpful for you. This episode, titled The F Word. Part one is a critical look at functional training. They're going to evaluate conventional thinking and present some enlightening research. I'm really excited for you guys to have these new perspectives because I truly believe it can influence every single workout that you have from here on out. Please check out both of our both of our instagram accounts at thinkfitbefit underscore podcast and fitness for consumption spelled out f-o-r for consumption they are just getting started but i know that both of us we really want to hear from you and what you're learning from these episodes not only that we are giving you a chance to ask us what's up and (laughs) what kind of questions you guys have about the content and about your own approach to fitness. So feel free to head on over to Instagram and follow, uh, share, DM. We're here for it. Without further to do, here is the third episode of Fitness for Consumption, all about the F word. I hope you enjoy this, and I look forward to hearing from you. Have a great week.
1: Welcome to Fitness for Consumption. This is a podcast with a very unique view on all things related to fitness. I'm Dr. Paul Juris kinesiologist, research scientist, performance coach, author, and innovator. I'm here with my co-host, motor learning and clinical specialist, Gregory Gordon. Together, we have over 50 years of practical and scientific experience in things relating to fitness, performance, and health. Join us as we share our stories and experiences and take a deep dive into essential fitness concepts and some highly complex issues too don't worry we promise to keep it practical and you know what else we promise we're not here to tell you what to think or what to do there's enough of that going around we're here to offer you a different perspective on fitness based on something called human movement science spend some time with us and you'll think more critically about what people are telling you you'll sort through it all and understand it more completely And you'll become self-empowered to make better decisions for you or for those with whom you're working. Are you ready? Let's get started. Hi everyone, thanks for joining us on Fitness for Consumption. I'm your co-host and lead provocateur, Dr. Paul Juris. And if you listen to our first episode, you know I love to challenge conventional wisdom, and I'm really looking forward to doing that today. But before I do, I'd like to introduce my friend and co-host, Gregory Gordon. Gigi? Good morning, PJ.
2: Yeah, my name is Gregory Gordon. I go by Gigi to friends and family, and let's face it, if you're listening to our podcast, consider yourself amongst that uh, highly esteemed group. Um, I have been a personal trainer, neuromuscular specialist, and continuing education provider in the fitness and health world for the past 20 years or so. And today, we're going to uh, poke the bear a little bit. So the title of today's episode is The F Word, and you know it, especially if you're listening to this podcast. So look, let's face it, PJ. PJ. We're living in a very partisan and polarized world. There's just that we there's, are. There's no two ways about it. And it Absolutely. doesn't extend only to politics, it actually extends into the fitness world as well. And people may or may not even be aware of some of the biases or emotional attachments they might have to exercises or certain fitness gurus. But over the past 20 years, there's really been sort of, uh, it's, it's almost becoming binary in terms of how people approach uh, fitness training, and that is one segment really looks at that all exercise needs to be, quote-unquote, functional. Ooh, and, that's the F word. <laughs> right? So that may be a functional. bit of a surprise. Yeah. Right. Functional. And so, funny enough, I think on every podcast, we're going to have this question of... We have a word that we all use, but if, and this comes up all the time, if you ask 10 different people what functional means to them, you might get 10 different answers. So we're going to dive into functional, what functional means in the exercise world, or at least people, what they think it means. And then we're going to dive in a bit into how we're going to look at it.
1: Yeah. So, you know, this has got to be one of those topics that I just love. To poke at, as you say, poke the bear. I mean, this is one of my favorite topics. Uh, I can't wait to get into this because if you think I'm a contrarian, if you listen to me in our first episode, Why We Move, uh, if you think I'm a contrarian about some of those issues, this is one where I really take it on. And so what we're going to do is we're going to start off looking at sort of the history. Where did this thing come from? How did functional training get into the mainstream? How did it get into our conversations? Then I think what we should do is look at some research. So Mm -hmm. this episode especially, we're going to start introducing research into the discussion because with something like this, I think it's important that we have some science to refer to to help us sift through some of the topics and ideas. And then we'll explore some practical applications. We'll say what do we do? What makes it functional and how do we approach it when we're training or training others? Yeah. So, I think we should launch right in and what's our first topic here? What do so, we want to launch with?
2: I'm always a fan of beginning at the beginning. So, you tell me, you've been in the biz longer than I have. What's your like give us a brief history of functional training, quote unquote, functional training.
1: Um, Okay, so let's step back even a little bit before that, because I think what we need to do is understand the trends that um, were emerging and changing over time. And some of the catchphrases that came out of those trends, right? So, you know, fitness really started as a bodybuilding thing. Um, Arnold, back in the 70s and 80s, and that whole bodybuilding approach. And then things like Group X aerobics started to hit the scene. I think one of the first catchphrases that I could ever recall was Jane Fonda saying, Feel the burn. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, that was something that kind of stuck for a while, and everybody was doing that. And then ultimately, because of those things, they were really focused on aesthetics and how we look. And in the early 90s, especially in the people that were working in and around fields like myself. And I was in orthopedic rehabilitation back then. We started to look at this and said, you know what? It's not about how you look. It's not about having steely buns. It's about what you can do. I mean, let's face it. I was working with patients, primarily ACL patients, who were damaged and injured and they were trying to get back to a normal life and I can't say to them we're going to make you feel the burn <laughs> <laughs> right so we had to do something that was going to get them back to normalcy and mm-hmm. return them to a level of functional capacity that was good for them and made them feel good and and restored their normal life so There were a lot of people back in the early 90s that were latching on to that and were starting to say, look, it's not about how you look. It's really about how well you function. Mm -hmm. And so that started to emerge as a prevailing theme. But before I leave that topic, I do want to say that right around 2000, when I was was just at Equinox then – I started to introduce the idea of functional training and, you know, maybe getting people into some open space and things like that. And when I was talking about this stuff at that time, people were looking at me like I had horns in my head. Like, what the heck are you talking about? And I said, this is where I think we ought to be going.
2: Mm. My experience with it is, I, I think my first personal training job was in like 1997, and I worked at one of those mom and pop gyms where, you know, they had one employee at a time, and you were the trainer, you were the janitor, you were the manager. Um, mm-hmm. And I, this was in San Francisco, and I don't remember the term functional ever coming up. We had no stability balls, we had no... Uh, Airx pads or foam pads or any instability devices. It was just a gym with weights, uh neighborhood gym. And then I think I stopped working there in like 1998. And then I didn't get another job as a trainer. I didn't really start my career in earnest until late 1999, where I moved to New York and started working at New York Sports Club. And somewhere within that gap, was when I got to New York Sports Club, they already had the stability balls, and it was the first time I had seen any of that stuff. And when I I quickly uh, somehow got promoted to being the fitness manager, and when you're the fitness manager, they gave me a budget on a monthly basis to where I could spend it on uh, products. And so there's a company called Perform Better that sells a lot of these supplementary products like Physio Balls and, you know, these other devices you might see around a gym. And they had all these functional training seminars. So within the, the magazines to order these products, you would see ads for videos and seminars coming up. And that's when I first started to hear about it, although I didn't really know exactly what it was. But I just got the gist, yeah, that this was something totally different and that all the bodybuilding-centric stuff I had done, you know, seem to be less valuable in this new world.
1: Yeah, and, and you mentioned the Perform Better workshops and things mm-hmm. like that, and, and there are two people that I haven't seen in a while, but they were dear friends of mine, Carol and Gary Scott. They ran a program called East Coast Alliance, ECA, and they were conventions that they ran in New York and down in Miami, mm-hmm. and I remember doing some presentations for them And this is when people like Juan Carlos Santana Mm -hmm. and Paul Cech were hitting the scene. Not the guitar
2: player, by the way.
1: (laughs) Right. (laughs) Um, You know, but some smart guys, and they were out there, and they were also pushing this idea that there was a different way of doing it. And you mentioned these products, and it's interesting because in physical therapy, physio balls were used in Mm -hmm. order to treat people with lumbar dysfunction, Um, You mentioned ex pads and other types of tilt disc apparatus. Really, I think those emerged from something called the BAPS board, which is the biomechanical uh, ankle platform system, which I think Gary Gray developed. Mm -hmm. And he developed that to treat people with chronic ankle instability. So it was a biomechanical platform. It had these little half domes that you could screw into the bottom of the platform to make it asymmetrical and then patients would use it in order to try to work their muscles in and around the foot and ankle to overcome this ankle instability so to some respect i think what happened was physical therapy sort of infiltrated fitness Mm -hmm. and said look we're working with patients. We're the ones who understand how to get people returning to function. So we're going to start to use these methods and tools in our training because that's the way we should be doing it. Now, that goes down a rabbit hole, by the way, that mm-hmm. I could argue with because that from that came this term prehab.
2: Mm-hmm. And
1: the idea was you do rehabilitation exercises before somebody gets hurt to prevent mm-hmm. them from getting hurt. Mm-hmm. I don't buy into that, right? Mm. The rehabilitation exercises are designed to rehabilitate somebody from an injury. It doesn't necessarily guarantee they're not going to get injured. So that's kind of this transition from aesthetic fitness, from bodybuilding. All of a sudden, physical therapy jumps into this, and we have these clinical applications that are driving the discussion around functional training.
2: Well, it makes sense, right? Because obviously the fitness market and, you know, just looking from a cold calculated economic point of view, the fitness market is 10 20 times the size of the physical therapy market. So if if you uh, are a physical therapist and you're interested in getting your products and message to a broader audience, the fitness audience is certainly, you know, a, a good opportunity for you to do that. And What was a problem then and unfortunately still remains a problem is that, uh, to pull the curtain back a little bit, look unfortunately the fitness world is still the wild wild west. There is no governing body. There's no one governing body. There's no state licensure. It's just basically, you know, it depends on what state you're in, uh, sort of, and ultimately really where you work. And what, mm-hmm. whatever insurance you might need to have, or if you're working at a certain club, they tend to favor certain certifications over others. But like there, there wasn't a lot of scientific thought going into it.
1: Well, the, the I think the physical therapy side introduced some of that, and you mentioned the Wild West, and you, there are still over three hundred fitness certifying organizations out there, and there is no one overriding body. And I think also what happened is. In the late 90s, people were just getting hurt working out and trainers were hurting people. Um, you know, I was actually asked back then, I was uh, called upon by two attorneys to provide expert testimony in litigation that was going on because trainers were hurting people. And a lot of the education back then was really centered around the notion of what you shouldn't be doing, not what you should be doing. They were just giving you a list of things not to do because they know that when you do those things, you get hurt. (laughs) And so, yeah, so this opened the door for physical therapy to kind of jump in and take over. And so these products came with them. Those things that you saw in the catalogs came with them. And the science... If there was any, was coming from that world, mm-hmm. and then it was being pushed into fitness, and then ultimately, it became the mainstay, mm-hmm. right? So you know that's kind of like a rough history of where we are, and I will say right now it's gone way off the rails, and that's why we're doing this. Um, but I think. What we should do, let's, you know, let's ask a question here because yeah. I love to ask questions. And yes. you've worked with people, I've worked with people. I think the first question that I ask trainers when we're talking about this kind of topic is, what is functional training? I mean, it's become this behemoth type of application. As you said, you're playing with toys. What is functional training? If you ask people, what is functional training? What do they tell you?
2: <laughs> so again, this comes back to ask 10 different people, you might get 10 different answers. So to me, if you ask a physical therapist, let's say, what is functional training? They might say, look, if you don't have 90 degrees of shoulder flexion, it's any it's exercises that can help you get to 90 degrees of shoulder flexion because that's high enough that you should be able to put something in a cabinet and that's, that's functional. If you ask an occupational therapist, they might say functional training or exercises that help you button a button on your shirt. And if you ask a personal trainer, I think the answer that you'll tend to get is that it's got to be an exercise that mimics some sort of daily life uh, motion. So something that like recreates bending down and pulling up groceries or pulling something down from a shelf, something like that. But the key seems to be something that mimics a daily living motion.
1: Yeah, that's the answer that I get. I've done seminars for Thousands of trainers, and when I put that question in front of them, what's a functional exercise? That's the answer that I get all the time. It's an exercise that replicates movements of daily living or activities of daily living. And on the surface, I think that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, on the you surface, can, can sure. Yep. Yeah, right. I mean, you know, it, it, okay, I'm doing what I do in everyday life. So, Here's a question, then. What if you do something that you don't do in everyday life? So what if you're doing some kind of a movement or an exercise that you don't normally do? Does that screw you up?
2: Is it dysfunctional? Well, that's the question, right? So if we look at something like pedaling a bicycle and my foot is moving around in a perfect circle... I don't know. What does the evidence tell us? Is that, does that create dysfunction? Do you get off your bike and suddenly collapse to the ground and, you know, it takes you several hours until you can reset and start moving again?
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean, think about it. What percentage of your daily life involves your foot moving around in a perfect circle? If we're going to look at that as the definition, right. you have to do what you do in daily life what percentage of time is your foot moving in a perfect circle? And the answer to that is uh, probably none Mm -hmm. unless you're on a bicycle. (laughs) Now your foot's moving in a perfect circle. So if you're a triathlete and you just got off a 100-mile bike ride and you're about to go run a marathon, when you get off your bike, do you start tripping and stumbling because suddenly your nervous system is all screwed up? Has it made you dysfunctional because your foot's been moving around in a circle instead
2: of an ellipse? Uh, no, and interestingly enough, it's interesting that you brought up the ellipse uh, in re- reference to an elliptical because the elliptical, and you're much more educated in this area than I am. So, and I think we've mentioned this in a prior podcast, but if we haven't, um, you are you were the former chief science officer of Cybex. I worked mm-hmm. for you as a teaching fellow for a period of time. So, and the truth is, uh, at least speaking for myself, I've got no dog in the race anymore. So, this isn't about. One equipment manufacturer better than another. It's just what this podcast is for: examining things on a critical level in the fitness world. So, mm-hmm. my understanding of the the elliptical machine that people are familiar with that is meant to be for anyone that is like knee pain that can't you know deal with the quote unquote shock from running that they need something non impact. The the design of the original elliptical machine was that when you're running the the shank, the foot, is is moving around in this ellipse-type. An ellipse is like an ovally-type shape. It's not a perfect circle. And the idea was that these engineers said, okay, look, we've, we have to create a machine that somehow simulates, quote-unquote, real-life motion. And the, this is the path that the foot is moving around in this ellipse-type shape, so let's create a machine that mimics that and that should solve two problems it it, cr- it gets rid of all the stress from the impact and it you know it fits in line with this this thought process of we've got to recreate daily living motions in order for things to be functional
1: we can go on and on about that but the reality there is yeah that was driven by this need to create a movement that was similar to what we do in daily life and this other question is really if we don't do that, is it bad for us? And the answer that I have to arrive at is no. Just because we do something that is atypical of normal daily living doesn't mean it's bad. It doesn't mean there's a detriment. It just means it's atypical. You know what? There's nothing wrong with that.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And, you know... Obviously, I, I mean this in jest a little bit, but if we really looked at what the, at least the average uh, Western person is doing on a daily basis in terms of their movements, you know, we'd be really limited in terms of the exercises we could create. It'd be a little bit of standing, a lot of sitting, lying. I mean, so it, it's just kind of an absurd Concept when you really start to chip away at it. But let's get into the heart of it, which is that the people that are most polarized on the opposite spectrum of us, which is that every exercise, not only does it have to be creating some sort of recreating some sort of daily living activity inside the gym, there's a big push that it's got to be total body as well. That if every joint isn't involved in the exercise, that it makes it less functional. And so they particularly um, seem to have a real problem with selectorized machines or machines that you sit down and you push on it and the the bar moves or something like a leg press or a chest press because they feel that it, it quote-unquote, isolates certain muscles, it makes other muscles stupid, and it might even make you dumber. That I've actually seen uh, certain people uh, project that if you use these machines, you get stupid muscles because you're, you're taking a muscle that's not meant to work in any sort of isolation, and that by, by doing these exercises, you're actually, first of all, you're creating these dysfunctions because you're getting one muscle stronger than these other muscles that it should be working with when you're doing a whole total body motion, and B, because the, there's nothing challenging about doing this machine, the muscle, the muscle itself is actually getting stupider. Uh, maybe,
1: maybe they were sort of regressing a little bit in their thought process. Um, look, first of all, if I were to do just a simple arm curl, whether it's on a machine or not, if I isolate my elbow joint, is my arm going to stop working? Does that what happen? Like all of a sudden I, I've lost the use of my arm because I did... An isolated exercise. And, you know, we mentioned this in our opening episode about doing everything and about how we react to this muscle confusion thing. We, the brain has the ability to figure it out. It, here's the, here's an interesting thought that I had. Anyway, I think it's interesting anyway. Um, we use these exotic movement screens to identify where people have deficits. In Mm -hmm. fact, we need to use these screens, according to some people, because without them, we can't see how the body is compensating for weaknesses. Mm -hmm. Right. So we have these asymmetries, we have these weaknesses, we have these limited capacities in certain areas in our body, and the only way that we are able to see them as observers is... To apply these movement screens. So are people like this saying that the brain is so adept at developing compensatory strategies for asymmetry that we need to use a screen, but the brain is not adept at figuring out what to do with a muscle that's strong? (laughs) I I don't understand that. It's like, wait a minute. You know, this is a very elegant organ we have stuffed into our craniums, and it can figure it out. So isolating a movement is not going to make us dysfunctional. In fact, we'll talk about instances and cases where in which doing it actually is beneficial.
2: Right, and let's just clear something up here for once and for all on this podcast, putting the gauntlet down. You can isolate a joint motion. You cannot isolate a muscle. So if your concern is that by doing a pec deck, you are only isolating the pec major and no other muscle in your body is turned on, you can go you you don't have to lose any more sleep over it because it it just doesn't work like that.
1: This is true. And we'll talk about the concept of synergy in another Episode, but this is something that is relatively new in the scientific community. But even if I were to strap myself into a device and fix a path of motion uh, by the manipulandum of this device, the body, the nervous system functions on a synergistic model so that all of the muscles that would normally be associated with controlling this. And this has to do with postural control. Mm -hmm. It has to do with with joint stabilization down the line. All of those work, regardless of whether you're in an isolative device or not. It's called a synergy. And some scientists, Graham Caldwell, especially at UMass, has identified in certain movements up to 16 different muscle groups that Mm -hmm. are all working regardless
2: of the level of
1: fixation that's right, occurring that's during the, that that's, movement.
2: That's, that's, that's very interesting.
1: So, in the context of what we're discussing here, it's a question of, if something's functional, what does that really mean? And if we're not doing that, is there a detrimental effect? Because that's the implication that, or the inference that I'm making, from these implied notions is if you're not doing it that way, there's a problem with it. I had an exchange with a physical therapist who was looking at a the arc trainer, by the way, when I was working at Cybex, is designed as a same-side forward machine. What that means is that the arms and legs move together. So it's an ipsilateral same-side motion. Left leg goes forward, left arm goes forward. And... You know, that's not normal. That's not what we do in daily life. In daily life, we swing in a contralateral pattern, right? So it's opposite arms and legs. So this physical therapist wrote me and said, this is really dysfunctional and it's going to cause problems in the motor system. And I said, where's the evidence for that? I said, think about how many things we do in normal daily life that don't involve a typical contralateral arm and leg swing. For example, what if somebody's walking down the street holding a cell phone to their ear? Now that arm that's holding the cell phone is not swinging in a normal pattern. Mm -hmm. What if somebody's got a backpack on and they've got their thumbs looped in the shoulder straps while they're walking? Now their arms aren't swinging at all. Mm -hmm. That's not a normal pattern. Mm -hmm. What about a boxer? What about someone who throws a thousand jabs Mm-hmm. In, in, a, in an event, in a boxing match, and they're left, if they're a right-handed boxer, their left arm and left leg are going forward at the same time. Mm-hmm. Are these people going to the doctor because they have neurological problems? <laughs> right. I mean, no. So these things don't cause dysfunction. Are they atypical? Yes. Are they problematic? Not at all. I think we've made the point, point. Um, and so I'm going to make a couple of observations here and kind of string them together and, and so that we can move the conversation along a little bit. All right. um, one is I think people do things because they can and not because they should. And right. so I think a lot of the functional training stuff is, look what I can make up. And so half of it is like a circus act to me. And the real question that I have around things like that is, should we really be doing that? Just because it's exotic and unusual and clever, does that mean that it's going to help people solve problems? Or is this thing just, hey, look what we can do. We're doing it because I can do it. And I think that's something that we need to consider because some of those things by the way, those are the things that led attorneys to call me and ask me for help. <laughs> so people were definitely getting hurt doing those things, and it's not if that's dysfunctional by the way, when you have a client and you're asking them to walk along a two-by-four, jump onto a BOSU, and then jump and land on a wobble board?
2: Imagine uh, if that That actually leads
1: happened. to serious dysfunction. <laughs> so, yeah, um, that's the first thing that I have. And then the next question that I have is, functional training, is it just a euphemism for avoiding boredom? I mean, is that what it's become? it It seems to me that's where we are it's this is a euphemism where whereby we're not going to do boring things, we're going to do these weird exotic movements, and you know it's better for you, but you know if that's what it is, let's drop the pretense and just call it what it is
2: right so in reverse order, I would actually say so if I saw someone doing some sort of circus type exercise like you're talking about, and then uh I went over and met them at the water fountain, and I said, "Hey, you know, what's the point of that exercise?" And if the person was like, "You know what, man, I'm just trying to just trying to figure out a way to keep this person from you know uh, from getting bored, and I'm, I'm trying to figure out something to do that, that's a little bit fun, it's a little bit novel, and to keep them from boredom." Okay, like that that part would be the 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 most valid explanation of the exercise. So I
1: respect that. Yeah,
2: I totally get like that is part of the job if you're a trainer. But yeah, I agree. I think it's very troubling when someone is coming in to lose 30 pounds and they've, at best, for most of us, and talking, putting my personal trainer hat on now. I see clients, if I'm at their trainer, twice a week at most, that gives me two hours. And people come in a lot of times with very high expectations of they want to, whatever, fit into a bikini or a wedding dress or just look like a model or they, 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 they want to see aesthetic changes in a typically br- brief period of time. And so if I'm accepting that challenge, I want to help them with that. And I've got two hours a week with them. How much of my time should be devoted towards doing exercises that I, I don't know what I'm actually getting out of it in terms of like muscle force production force absorption capabilities. We're just doing this sort of circus-like activity, and it's taking a lot of time because they don't know what they're doing. It's, it, you know, you know, we're spending a lot of time just trying to come up with this sort of game. Like How is that helping them towards their goals, and how much of my time am I stealing from them by just creating these things just for amusement when I could be using that time for exercises that I think would be much more productive towards helping them reach their goals?
1: so the the question then is, how do we reframe the conversation around functional training because I think it has taken on this meaning which is really not necessarily um helping and so you know there's a little story that I have regarding that that may shed some light on this. Mm-hmm. So I was the performance coach for the Dallas Mavericks. And while I was there, the team hired a free throw mm-hmm. shooting coach to help the players improve their free throw shooting. And so he comes in and he sets up a camera on the, the foul line. So it's looking at a sagittal plane view of the players shooting free throws. And he's getting video of all of these players shooting. So later on, I'm walking in the training room and I see him in the video room and he's looking at the videos. So I'm curious. You know, I've done a lot of motion analysis in my life. And Mm -hmm. so I walk in and I'm looking at him and I ask him a question. I said, What are you looking at? And he turned and he said, I can't tell you. (laughs) I said, What "What do you mean you can't tell me? You know, I work for the Mavericks. He said, No, 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 this is proprietary. And I'm thinking, okay, I'm a kinesiologist, right? And I've done all kinds of motion studies. What do you think you're going to see here that I don't already know? But I played along. Okay, Mm -hmm. it's his business, right? So I played along. And I just asked another question. I said, how many free throws did each player take? Because that's going to determine whether you have a good representative sample. And he said, well, every player took 50 shots. I'm like, okay. Okay. That's good. That's a good mm-hmm. place to start. 50 shots should tell you something about their pattern. So then I asked him this question. How many did they make? And he said, huh? <laughs> and I said, that, was that not clear? I said, how many of the 50 shots that they took, how many did they make? And he said, well, what do you mean? I said, what do you mean what do you mean? How many shots went in the basket? And he said, well, I don't know. And and I said, well, what do you mean you don't know? He said, well, that's not what I was looking at. And I said, well, what were you looking at? He said, well, now he's divulging. He said, mm-hmm. well, I'm looking at their shoulder position and their elbow position and their wrist follow through and how their arm's moving through space. And I said, what difference does that make? He said, well, that's going to determine whether they hit the shot. And I said, no, it isn't. <laughs> what determines whether they hit the shot is whether the ball went in the basket. (laughs)
2: Did they hit the shot?
1: Did they hit the shot? I said, it doesn't matter how they get it there. I said, I don't care if they have it with their elbow aligned with their shoulder. I don't care if their elbow's flared. I don't care if they're shooting with two arms, if they're going underhand. I don't care if they're kicking the ball in. I don't care if they bounce the ball off their head and get (laughs) it in. The only thing that matters is whether the ball goes in the basket. That's it. That's the objective. And so this comes back to this whole notion of what functional training is. I think people look at functional training as a process. This guy was looking at the process of free throw shooting. But the thing that matters here is the outcome. Did you get the ball in the basket? Because that is ultimately what we're getting judged on. And so we need to reframe this discussion and say it's not about the process. Functional training isn't about the movement that you're doing. Functional training is about the outcome of that training. What can you do better as a result of that exercise or training that you did. And if you can't do anything better, then it's not functional. And so it changes the point of view. It changes the context. Because now the way to look at functional training is, what do I want to do? What do I have to do to get there? And that's where we start to look at What kind of exercises and problems do we introduce so that people can accomplish goals and solve problems more effectively? Those things become functional, and I think in order for us to really get there, we need to look at some real research. That's what we should get into in our next segment. All right. All right. So here we are in our next segment. And I think what we've tried to do is create a different framework for functional training and what we think it is and how we should be thinking about it. It's not the process, it's the outcome. And in order to really dig a little deeper into that, we should probably look into some of the research that's associated with this, right?
2: Agreed. Yeah, you know, quickly before we get into it, it makes me think of when I did work for you at Cybex. um, There was a showroom floor that had a bunch of exercise machines, and actually, kind of worked as like a gym, I guess, for the for you guys that worked there. There were offices, and then there was an auditorium where you would teach the courses for trainers that were coming in. And I remember when I came in the first time, there was—I think it was on the side of the wall—but you had this slogan for Cybex, and it said. What really matters? And what really matters is what this segment is all about to me. So let's go through the research and let's pull apart from what people think about functional. Let's start to tease apart what really matters about this stuff.
1: That's a really good question. What really matters? And so let's start with a question. Do we really have to replicate actual movements uh, in order to change the outcome? That's the question. Right. It's not, do we have to replicate them to be functional? Do we have to replicate movements in order to demonstrate improved outcomes? And so I'm going to start with a study that was done in 1994 by Newton and McAvoy. This was in the Journal of Strength and Conditioning Research. And it was a study on baseball throwing velocity. Mm-hmm. So what they were actually doing was comparing conventional weight training versus plyometric med ball training Mm -hmm. right so the plyometric med ball training the ball by the way was a three kilogram ball that they were using Mm -hmm. and that was designed to sort of replicate throwing motion whereas the conventional weight training was really weight training it was a bench press and a pullover Mm -hmm. now You could see that there is some minor similarity in a bench press and a pullover, but that's not replicating a throwing motion. No. And so in this study, they had 24 players who were going through an eight-week training program, no training experience. These are just baseball players without any real experience in training. And so they were looking at their maximum throwing velocity, that's what they measured, as well as their six-repetition barbell bench press. So those were the measures that they were looking at. And then they were correlating those changes with changes in throwing motion. And what they discovered was that the traditional strength training group, bench press and pullover, actually increased their throwing velocity more Mm -hmm. than the medicine ball group. Mm -hmm. So there was a 4.1 meter per second increase in throwing velocity in the traditional group, and a 1.6 meters per second increase in the med ball group, and that was a significant difference. So what that one says is that you don't actually have to perform the task in order to get better at the task. That training in a different way actually produces a better outcome. So that's one example of it. There's another example that was done by Wisloff and colleagues in 2004. This one was in the British Journal of Sports Medicine, and they were correlating a max squat with sprinting and vertical jump height. Mm-hmm. And these were soccer players. Okay. And what they found was that max squat weight actually correlated very strongly, 0.94, which is, it's actually negative 0.94, meaning the stronger you are, the shorter your time so that's Mm -hmm. a negative correlation doesn't mean bad it just means they're going in opposite directions your strength goes up your time goes down so it had a 0.94 correlation with 10 meter sprint time squatting and sprinting they're both using your legs but they're not the same thing so there's evidence there that you don't have to replicate motion in order to demonstrate improvement in some outcome measure.
2: Right. And to get back, so what really matters here? So it, for the first group, um, the first study, if they're, if they're untrained coming into it, in term, at least in terms of strength training, and they're starting to bench press and pull over... They're getting stronger. And so they're able to produce more force. And so same thing with the other group. They're able to squat and they're able to produce more force. That's what really matters here. And in your ability to be able to throw a baseball or sprint, your ability, at least one aspect of it that really actually matters is your ability to produce forces, higher amounts of force.
1: And rate of tension development.
2: Yeah, we'll get it. Right. So it's
1: not just the force, it's how rapidly you develop it. So what really matters what really matters when I'm throwing a baseball is how fast is the ball leaving my hand. What's the exit velocity at my hand? Not whether I'm performing the movement in a particular way, but what is the outcome? The outcome is throwing the ball. What is the measure of a ten meter sprint? It's the time that it took me to run ten meters. And These people, these subjects, were engaged in either a training or some correlating study which showed that something different from the movement itself was correlating strongly with an improved outcome. Mm -hmm. So that's an interesting finding because it suggests that we don't have to replicate movements. We can do things other than the movements themselves in order to achieve an outcome.
2: Yeah, and not to keep beating this up, but I've seen a lot of times online and in person that... When someone is that is really subscribes to this other what the sort of industry describes as functional training when they're working with the throwing athlete, they'll actually have them on a cable system and they'll they'll have them maybe you know some implement or maybe sometimes they're describing the the distal end of the cable itself and they're doing a throwing motion and so yeah you're sort of even then it's a little goofy, but you're kind of sort of replicating this throwing motion, but obviously when you're throwing a ball and you know you're throwing a ball and gravity is pushing that ball down. There's nothing that's tethered to the ball that's pulling your arm back. So when you're doing this motion, but you've got the loads in a completely different direction than is actually required for producing this actual motion, you know, it doesn't make a lot of sense when you, when you think that that's going to be a better transfer to, to our definition of function, which is a, you know, a better ability to, to achieve this goal, which is to be throw it, Throw it faster, throw it with more velocity.
1: Yeah, so that kind of leads us into the next point and the next question is that sometimes what we think is functional really isn't. Mm -hmm. And so anecdotally, I've experienced the same thing with golfers. When you take people and load them up in their golf swing, it actually screws up their swing. So there are other ways that you need to go about improving it. But getting into the research again, um, this time we're going to introduce... The, the FMS, because the FMS is largely used as a test of function, right? It's a functional movement screen.
2: Can you describe it for anybody that doesn't know what that might be?
1: Well, the FMS is a series of seven different assessments that look at lower body uh, mobility. It's really mobility and stability, right? So it's lower body mobility and stability, in some cases strength, uh, upper body and core, and so there are seven measures, and each one is graded on a zero to three scale, depending on subjective criteria, which are provided by the screen. So that's an FMS. And it's used functional as a,
2: movement screen. It's right.
1: the functional movement screen, um, and one of the one of the assessments itself is an overhead squat, and the overhead squat has sort of become the poster assessment for function. Mm. And it's used everywhere now. NASM mm-hmm. uses it. FMS uses it. There are technology devices out there now. People are referring to the overhead squat. Everybody's doing the overhead squat. So we'll get into that in a second. Mm-hmm. But so here's here's the question. If this is a functional movement screen, that means it's identifying functional capacity,
0: Mm -hmm. presumably.
1: So the question is, does it do that? Does the FMS actually correlate with functional outcome measures? And so there was a study done in 2011 by Parchman and McBride. This one's in the Journal of Strength and Conditioning Research. And they're looking at the relationship between the FMS and athletic performance in golfers. So there are 25 subjects, 10 men, 15 women. These are NCAA collegiate golfers. And they did a battery of tests. They did the full FMS, all seven measures. They did a 1RM back squat. So they're looking at back squat strength. Mm -hmm. And then they were looking at field tests. So 10 and 20 meter sprint times, a vertical jump, a T test, which is a shuttle run test, Mm -hmm. and club head velocity. And they did a Pearson product moment correlation on all of those measures, right? And so here's what they found. The 1RM back squat correlated very strongly with every one of those performance outcome measures. 10 meter sprint, 20 meter sprint, vertical jump, T-test, club head velocity. All of those had very strong correlation coefficients, 0.81 and higher. All right. So that's a very strong correlation. means the stronger you are, as indicated by the back squat, the better you're going to perform. Mm-hmm. When they did the correlations with the FMS, nothing correlated, mm. nothing. Not the 10-meter sprint, the 20-meter sprint, the vertical jump, the T-test, the clubhead speed. Clubhead speed, it wasn't significant, but it was a m- negative correlation. So as mean? the FMS score improved, your clubhead speed
2: decreased. Mm-hmm. I don't so- think
1: that's the objective in a golf swing.
2: And one would surmise that if you scored high on this FMS screen, which is supposed to, again, evaluate you for function or lack thereof, that you should be scoring high in these other tests as well, right?
1: Well, that would be the objective here, right? So if this thing is being used as a measure of functional outcome, then it should show a strong correlation between an FMS score and these measures of function. And in this case, there was no correlation. Mm -hmm. So... Does this thing that we think is a functional measure, does it actually enable us to f- measure function? And in this particular case, the answer is no. So there's another example of that. Uh, in 2011, there was a study done by Okada et al. And the senior author in that study was Thomas Nesser. And Thomas Nesser has done a tremendous amount of work in core stability and core function. So this was really a study that looked at core function and core capability, but they were also looking at functional movement and performance. And they, again, looked at the FMS. But in this case, I want to highlight the overhead squat because I just a moment ago indicated that it's become this measure, Mm it is the measure. So they did all the FMS testing, including the overhead squat, and they also looked at three performance measures. One is a triple extension, which is when you take a medicine ball from a squat position and you throw it backwards over your head. So Mm -hmm. that's a triple extension movement. They did a T run and they also did a single leg squat, a unilateral squat. And what they discovered was no correlation between the overhead squat, the T run, the triple extension, the single leg squat. There was no correlation at all. So in other words, being able to do an overhead squat effectively didn't mean that any outcome measure would show improvement or would show a high level. There was Mm -hmm. nothing that can explain a relationship between those things. So, you know, we think these things are functional, but that doesn't make them functional just because someone's telling us it's functional. And... Let me just explain the overhead squat a little bit because I think it's really interesting. There was a study that was done in 93 by Mick Nick Gray. It was a biomechanical study. And what she was doing is looking at people doing depth jumps mm-hmm. from different levels. And she was measuring the torques, or what we refer to as the moments, the extensor moments at the knee and at the hip, because the, and at the ankle too. But what we... Tend to look at in sports performance is what we call the hip to knee moment ratio, which is looking at the torque occurring at the hip and looking at the torque occurring at the knee and seeing how that relationship changes. Mm -hmm. And what McNick Gray determined was that as movements become faster and more dynamic, the body sort of pushes more towards a hip-based strategy. In other words, as we're going faster and as we're applying more force through the system, we need to rely more on the hip joint than the knee joint. Why? Because it's more stable, it's bigger, and it's stronger. We can Mm -hmm. develop more power through the hip. So as we move faster, as we move more dynamically, we tend to create a hip-to-knee moment ratio that leans much more heavily toward the hip. And what she found is in dynamic states the hip-to-knee moment ratio can be as much as 3 to 1. So the mm. hip is m- working three times more so than the knee. Mm-hmm. So that's how that works. Now, there was another study done in 2010 by Butler and colleagues in in sports biomechanics. And by the way, the senior author on that one was Kyle Kiesel. Kyle Kiesel has done all the research, basically, for Greg Cook in the FMS. So gotcha. he's the research guy for Greg uh-huh. Cook. And... He did a biomechanical analysis of the overhead squat. Now, what he didn't do was look at the hip-to-knee moment ratio, but he did record the hip and knee moments. So he didn't report on the ratio, but he did report on the moments. And what he determined in looking at the overhead squat was that the hip-to-knee moment ratio was 0.87. Now, the hip-to-knee moment ratio of a dynamic motion is 3.1. So it's 3 to 1. In the overhead squat, the knee is actually working harder than the hip. Yeah, it's
2: almost reverse.
1: It is reverse, Right. And so the question is, how can you look at a movement like an overhead squat, which has a hip-to-knee moment ratio favoring knee function, knee moments, and torques, and think that that in any way could explain how somebody's going to perform in a dynamic state. Right. And the answer is it can't. It's impossible.
2: Right. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a big leap, to say the least. PJ, I just want to bring something up really quick, and this is something we talked about before we did this episode. So I read that Okada study, too. And if anyone's interested, we're going to give all the references to these studies. And if you read it on your own, you're going to come across um, in part of the Okada study where they say the FMS has a high degree of reliability. And so I think it's important. Let's just do it really briefly. But let's just explain what reliability is in a research setting so it doesn't get confused with what I think people might confuse it with, which is the idea of validity. So let's just break those apart for a second.
1: So, validity means that the outcome of that which we're measuring actually has some meaningful association with another outcome measure. So, whatever it is I'm testing, it's valid if it actually demonstrates a meaningful outcome, not simply that I get the same result. So, if I perform a test and I keep getting the same result that's reliable. But Mm -hmm. if the result is meaningless, then it's not valid. So, you know, there's a difference between the two, and and we shouldn't be fooled by the inter-rater reliability studies. Those are important, by the way, don't get me wrong. It shows that when people are looking at someone doing a screen, that we can be pretty comfortable with the fact that most people will see the same thing. Mm -hmm. But the question is, is whether what they're seeing has any value. And if it doesn't have value, then it's not valid. And so if we're looking at an overhead squat with the intention of predicting how somebody's going to perform, let's say, in a dynamic moving condition like football, well, then the outcome of the overhead squat has no validity because it doesn't relate or correlate with anything that could be considered dynamic movement. So it's not going to tell you anything, and therefore it's not valid.
2: Yeah, is it measuring what we think it's actually measuring? Yeah, and in that case, it's not. All right, PJ, so before we close the chapter on the FMS screen, let me just play devil's advocate for a second. So, you know, I think you've shown some support and evidence that it may not be as accurate a predictor um, for function as, you know, maybe, uh, it's commonly thought to be, but mm-hmm. is you know, is it devoid of value altogether? If I'm a trainer and I'm looking at someone and we can argue about the seven motions they've decided to look at, but right. to me, there's some intrinsic value still of just observing someone do seven different motions and, and looking at how they do it and, you know, in taking some information just from my observations of how they go about it. Yeah, that's a fair point, Gigi. You know, if you look at the original
1: intent of the FMS, and, you know, we have to be fair to them, right? Because, you know, frankly, we've picked on them a little bit. But the original intent was not to use this as a determination of functional outcomes. Mm -hmm. The original research that was done by that group was really to develop a scoring system, a screen that would in some way predict one's tendency towards injury, mm-hmm. right? So they came up with a number and they correlate that number with the propensity for getting injured. Mm-hmm. Now, mind you, they can't tell you where you're going to get injured or mm-hmm. how you're going to get injured. So right. that's a whole nother issue, and right. I don't want to open up that can of worms. But what they've done is they've said, look, if you have a score of X, and it's low enough there's a reasonable chance that someone's at risk of injury mm-hmm. that was the original intent of the research and i think what's happened it's you know it's like the game of telephone right where you you put a message in one end and it comes out different at the other end and so people just kind of run with these ideas without thinking of what the authors originally wanted to do they start using it in different ways and what we're really doing is looking critically at these different ways that people have been using it in order to assess function. And in that context, we're saying, you know what? It doesn't really assess function because it doesn't relate
2: to functional outcomes. Right. So uh, yeah, I think if we leave it there is that if like, I remember when I first started as a trainer, I was taught to take pulse and blood pressure. Then we go out on the floor and there we didn't have FMS didn't exist yet. So mm-hmm. um, look, if you leave it there, that again, the to me, the the seven positions they've chosen are relatively arbitrary in my personal opinion. But um, if you have these seven motions and combine, that gives you some score. And if that score, based on the spectrum, gives you some indication of um, someone's potential when you take them out onto the exercise floor in terms of the intensity you may want to uh, start their program with, I, you mm-hmm. know, I, I think that's a good place to leave it. And, I, and if if it's under those constraints, I think it, it can provide some value.
1: Right. So let's use it in the way we can, but also let's be aware of its limitations yeah. so that we don't use it in a way that's inappropriate. And exactly. then from there we can move on, right?
2: Yep, exactly.
1: So right. um, then there's the case of Sometimes what we think is completely non-functional is actually functional. It has right. functional validity, and so this is where it gets really interesting. And I told you in our last episode that I worked in North. That's right. Here's the payoff. That's right. And, strap and you up, made everybody. a comment, so this yep. is it. So this is where we're going to strap in and everybody's you know going to get all upset and everything because I'm saying this, but so be it. Yep. So there was uh, ACL rehabilitation. It's it, I've spent years doing it. I treated well over 300 ACL patients and lots of studies that were done. And there was one in particular that was done, actually several, but I'm citing this one. It was done by Mil- Mickelson and colleagues in 2000, and it was in the Journal of Knee Surgery, Sports, Traumatology, and Arthroscopy. Say that three times (laughs) (laughs) fast. And so they looked at 44 ACL patients, and they tested them pre and post surgery. So these are surgical patients. Mm -hmm. They were tested pre and post surgery. And the testing was strength testing. Um, Obviously, they're not testing return to sport because they're injured. But the other thing they use is something called the KT-1000 arthrometer, which is a device which actually introduces an anterior draw at Mm -hmm. the knee. And so that looks at ACL or ligamentous laxity. So Mm -hmm. when you have a positive draw sign, that means you tore your ACL.
2: So it's pulling your lower leg forward.
1: Right. It pulls the tibia forward relative to to the femur. femur. Yep. And so which is what your ACL is designed to prevent. Yeah. And it's, so it's, it's measuring strain joint on relaxate. the ACL, right. That's right. And so they took these 44 patients and they split them into two rehab groups. One group did only closed kinetic chain strengthening, right? So closed chain in this context or squats or leg press or, you know, total lower body movements.
2: Things where your foot is on the ground is how most people...
1: Or a world. foot plate, right? Yeah. I refer to it as terminally fixed. Because yeah. uh, we're going to get into closing the yeah, yeah, chain yeah, later because yeah, 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 yeah. th- that's another that's But just another to keep it area. simple
2: for, yeah. Yes. For.
1: All right. So just imagine you you know, the load is being applied through the bottom of your foot up into the body, the hip and knee and ankle, everything's moving there. That whole chain is moving together. Right, so, one group did only closed kinetic chain exercise. The mm-hmm. other group did those closed kinetic chain exercises, but in addition, they did open kinetic chain exercise, which Uh-oh. in normal parlance is called a...
2: Knee extension?
1: A knee extension. Bum, a leg bum, extension. Bum, bum.
2: The most hated of all selectorized machines, the most bastardized of all selectorized machines of all time.
1: It is the most vilified exercise that I have ever seen in fitness. I can't tell you how many times I've seen someone say or write, don't ever do leg extensions. It's the worst exercise in the world. Okay, well, these are ACL patients, post-surgical ACL patients that did leg extensions in addition to the closed kinetic chain mm-hmm. exercises so what are the outcomes of this study number one there was no significant difference in joint laxity in either group okay. in other words after doing all of their rehab neither the closed kinetic chain group or the closed plus open group mm-hmm. had any increase in joint laxity in other words, doing leg extensions puts no stress on the ACL. Okay, that's a and and we can talk about that because it's really that's another discussion yeah. later. But that's a fact. Yep. Here's really what got interesting: quad strength increased more in the combined open and closed group. Mm-hmm. All right. So the group that included leg extensions in their rehab actually had a greater increase in quadriceps strength than the closed kinetic chain group alone. Mm-hmm. And given that atrophy in the quadriceps is so significant and loss of strength in those muscles is so significant post-ACL, mm-hmm. improving that strength is absolutely paramount to an effective recovery. Mm-hmm. And here's the real, uh, the real outcome, the, the real um, gem to this. More patients from the leg extension group return to pre-injury level than in the closed kinetic chain group. Mm. More patients. Twelve from that group return to the pre-injury level of performance and only five from the closed kinetic chain group return to pre-injury level performance. Mm. If function is a measure of your outcome, then using leg extensions in this context was more functional than not using them.
2: Right. And to my original question starting off this segment, what really matters? So, look, one way of looking at it is just that the the closed and open chain group just had more volume, but okay, that's part of it. But strengthening those quadricep muscles, which we know are not only important for the knee extension part, but the part that always gets overlooked is the decelerating the knee flexion component. That's critical in being able to return to, you know, quote unquote, normal function.
1: Well, and and let me just correct something. It the the volume is normalized. So in any time any time you do a study like this, yeah, if you did more volume on the on the one in the one group, then that's gonna cause a difference. Yeah, and No, okay. my bad they normalized the volume so gotcha. that they were doing the same amount of work. They were just doing different kinds of work. But you're right, what really matters? What really matters at the end of the day is whether these people could go back and do what they needed to do. When I was working with ACL patients And in particular, I was working with professional athletes. We did leg extensions. And we did them, I mean, copiously. So they were doing, in some cases, three sets on their uninvolved side, which we always work the uninvolved side. They were doing 10 sets on their involved side. We never had any fractures. We never had any ACL ruptures. We never had any setbacks. And all of those people improved. And they improved in measures that were valid in relation to functional outcomes. Mm-hmm. We had them leaping, hopping, jumping, cutting. The basketball players were demonstrating. I, had, I worked with one player, and I'm not going to mention who it is because that's not important. Mm-hmm. But he tore his ACL in December. And then in April, we had him back on the floor. Before he tore his ACL, he couldn't dunk off that leg. After he tore his ACL and went through surgery and went through rehabilitation with us, he was dunking off that leg. Mm -hmm. And a good deal of that rehabilitation was leg extensions. Mm -hmm. So for people who think it's a bad exercise, Mm -hmm. it's a great exercise. Mm -hmm. If you need to isolate the vasti and strengthen the quadriceps, there isn't a better way to do it. Because when you do a compound movement, The system is going to use the path of least resistance. It will come up with a strategy that involves other muscles and other joints. It's going to get around the fact that there's an injury to the knee. Mm -hmm. When you do an isolated exercise like that, you give the system no choice. It has to use those muscles. Mm -hmm. And that's how you improve their strength, their resilience. We talked about it in the previous episode, right? Tissue density, strength joint integrity, those are things that are essential to being able to solve a problem. And in the in this case, the problems are climbing stairs, getting out of a chair, or playing basketball. But doing that exercise strengthens those muscles to the effect that they can control motion around the knee. And you said it, um, managing acceleration and deceleration.
0: Mm-hmm. When
1: you're running And let's say you're running eight miles an hour, and you land on your leg, your knee goes into flexion at a rate of acceleration, and actually then you have to decelerate. It's about 8,000 degrees per second squared.
2: I know that's mind-boggling for people to understand, but yeah.
1: It's true. And so developing the strength in the vasti helps to control that motion, and it's critical to function. So, the thought that a leg extension is not functional because it doesn't replicate what we do in real life, or for some ridiculous reason, we think that the brain is going to turn to mush because Mm -hmm. we're strengthening a muscle, is Mm -hmm. absurd. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I get very, very animated about this because it's one of those things that I hear it said over and over and over again, and I haven't seen anyone produce any evidence. That suggests that a leg extension is detrimental,
2: yeah, that was by the way, when i first when I mentioned I first started as a trainer in New York City, and all this functional stuff was coming up. that was the one um, piece of equipment that if there was any sort of that talk going around about it that they would tell me not to use, and I would ask why, and they would say well it's it's too much shearing stress, and so I didn 't know what shear was, and by the way, shearing stress just means force is going across a joint, which is a totally normal joint joint force. You can have excessive shear, just like you can have excessive compression. And um, But for a knee extension to be dangerous, the pad would have to be on the other side of your leg, forcing it to go into extension, and then something that keeps forcing it past your end range of extension. So the fact that you're controlling essentially how far into extension you're going, there's virtually no risk at all of you know, creating an ACL injury?
1: Well, it, so just to put some numbers on it to give people a sense of what's really going on here, the maximum tensile strength of the ACL, of the ligament, is about 2,500 newtons. So, I, you know, I don't want to get into a calculation of, mm. you know, how do you convert newtons into pounds, um, but it's 2,500 newtons, which is a pretty significant amount of load. So... Once you exceed 2,500 newtons, that's when the ligament mm-hmm. will tear. So the amount of tensile load on the ACL during a leg extension is like 100 newtons. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I mean, come on. It's, it's 100 out of a maximum of 2,500. It's mm-hmm. not going to cause any damage. So sh- sheer stress is not the issue. The issue with any of these things, by the way, and, and we're getting into other topics here, which we can cover later, lunges squats any of these things the sheer stress on the acl is really minimal and in fact in some cases the load is greater on the pcl than the acl Mm -hmm. but um it's the patellofemoral compression that's really the problem that's what causes most problems in most of these activities and in order to minimize that all you need to do is then minimize the range of motion at the knee So keep the range of motion from zero, which is full extension, to maybe 20, 30 degrees if you really want to cut back on patellofemoral compression. And then otherwise, there's nothing wrong with doing any of these exercises. They're all very beneficial. And like I said in our last episode, do everything, right? Don't eliminate these things because somebody's telling you not to do it. They don't know what they're talking about.
2: Mm -hmm. (laughs) Agreed. All
1: right, so um, I'm going to just introduce one more thought before we move on from this segment. Let's do it. And here's something to to really wrap your brain around. There's a lot of research that's done in the area of mental practice. Mm -hmm. So what mental practice means is that we're not actually performing a task. What we're doing is just thinking about it. And so there's this really interesting study done in 2009 by Creamer and colleagues And this one is in Perceptual Motor Skills, which is a really wonderful journal. Mm -hmm. And they were looking at mental practice and dart throwing. And so they looked at, they had 209 subjects, which is an amazing number of subjects for a study. And they were tested on throwing darts with their non-dominant side. Mm -hmm. So if you're right-handed, you were tested throwing left-handed. Okay, And so they gave these subjects mental practice, half of them. So they were thinking about the dart throwing task. And they broke it up into blocks. So they did 25 practice throws, 50 practice throws, and 100 practice throws. But when I say practice throws, this is just imagining Mm -hmm. the throw. This is not Mm -hmm. actually doing it. It's Mm -hmm. just thinking about it. And then the other half, what they did was they gave them a catching task. So you have to give the other group something to think about and something to do, but it can't be similar to what the mm-hmm. what the actual experimental group is doing. So the control group in this case was doing a catching task. And then they scored the dart throws, you know, the way you might score a throw on a dartboard. Okay. And so on average between the 3 levels of practice, 25, 50 or 100 practice throws, their dart throwing improved 9.9% on average, their mm. scores, 9.9% just thinking about it, yep. whereas the catching group showed no improvement at all. So what's really interesting to me about this particular study is it says not only do you not have to replicate the task in order for it to be functional – you don't have to do it at all. Right. All you have to do is practice mentally, and right. you can improve an outcome.
2: And again, what really matters? So we always tend to think about you know whether we're replicating the exercise or the exercise, but there's a cognitive processing part to the exercise as well. And so when I'm doing mental imagery or mental practice, I'm doing the intention. I'm doing the motor planning in my brain. I'm doing all the same things I would be doing, except I'm not sending the final signal down to the spinal cord to actually get the muscles to contract and move the joints. So what really matters here is that the better I get at (laughs) cognitive, funny enough, you can do a little bit of problem solving, but working on the cognitive processing component of this task, that matters, that helps. And obviously it showed in this functional outcome here.
1: Well, and to bring it back to the conversation that we had in our opening episode, understanding the task and the goal of the movement is Mm -hmm. critical to performance in the task. And this is a a wonderful example of that. If you can get someone to really work this in their mind so that they understand the goal. And by the way, the goal in in throwing a dart is the exact same thing as shooting a free throw in basketball. Now, that may sound strange to most people, but yes, the ultimate goal in shooting a basketball is to get the ball in the basket. But here's the thing. Once the ball leaves your hand, there's nothing you can do about it anymore. Mm -hmm. And so when I work with basketball players, I don't focus so much on the rim. I actually focus on the point in space at which they're going to release the basketball. Mm. That's called the release point. If you can get them to release the basketball in the same point on a consistent level with the same kind of motion, now the ball is going to go in the basket. Same thing for the dart. The dart is about the release point. So you want to be able to get the dart to a point in space so that it's consistent at the point of release so that it hits the board in the way you want to do it. Understanding that helps somebody perform the task. And then practicing that in their mind improves performance, and that is functional. And they're not moving at all. Right. So, you know, I think what we've done here, hopefully, if people are still listening (laughs) after all this, is we've thrown a wet towel on what functional training has become because it really has gone sideways. And we need people to understand that, Helping people to achieve function is about getting results. It's about outcomes, not processes. And what we'll do in the next segment is spend a few minutes talking about what those outcomes are like and the practical approach To achieving those outcomes. Right.
2: And how to fit that into the fitness ecosystem that we spoke about in that first episode.
1: Exactly. And we'll be bringing that to you in part two of this episode the F word.